0: When I was a kid reader myself, it took me a little while to warm up to Robert C. O'Brien's Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim*. My teachers and librarians and friends all said it was good, but personally, I wasn't that excited to pick up a book about rats. That's just me. I also didn't know how to pronounce that NIMH acronym and certainly had no idea what it stood for. At that time, I didn't know what a big deal it was for a book to have that shiny Newbery medal on the cover. I had a lot to learn, obviously. I did eventually read Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim as a kid, and I recently picked it up again for episode 163 of SSR. The book was published in 1971 and won the Newbery in 1972. It's the story of a newly widowed mouse named Mrs. Frisbee, who is on a mission to safely move her family before the farmer who owns the surrounding land begins preparing the fields for planting. Her youngest son is sick and isn't quite ready to make the journey. Mrs. Frisbee finds her way to a group of rats who are willing to help because of their connection to the late Mr. Frisbee. The rats of Nim escaped from a lab and are now set to build an independent civilization that will allow them to thrive without taking resources from humans. They have the capabilities necessary to save the Frisbee family, but they have a few problems of their own, and Mrs. Frisbee has the chance to shine as she jumps in to help. As you're about to hear, this book inspires conversations about everything from community cooperation and animal testing to the importance of learning and self-reliance. My guests and I also spend quite a bit of time talking about Robert C. O'Brien's unique structural choices and the slightly chaotic ending. There's also a great discussion ahead about why Mrs. Frisbee is the only main character who doesn't get a first name, and the importance of changing our collective approach to gendered honorifics like Mrs. My guests and I have a lot of thoughts about what Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim is trying to say, and you're about to hear them all. Sarah Ennie is an author, podcaster, and journalist who lives in Los Angeles. Her debut young adult novel, Tell Me Everything, was released by Scholastic in 2019. You can read her short story, The Blessing of Little Wants, in the New York Times bestselling villain anthology, Because You Love to Hate Me, out now. Sarah created and hosts the First Draft podcast, as well as the Track Changes podcast miniseries. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at sarahenny and at Sarahennie.com, and find the podcast at firstdraftpod and firstdraftpod.com. You can listen to First Draft wherever you listen to your favorite pods. I'm a huge fan of the show and also of Sarah, and as you're about to hear in this episode, the two of us are basically a conversational match made in heaven. I had so much fun talking with Sarah, and I am so happy that she took the time to read and discuss this book with me. You can get involved in the ongoing discussion about all things books, podcasts, pets, snacks, and so much more by following SSR on social media. I spend most of my social media time on Instagram at SSRPod. But the podcast is also on Twitter at SSRPod and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast community. There's even more SSR community in the SSR Book Club, a totally free group that chats on Facebook, Slack, and Zoom about throwback middle grade and YA books that have previously been covered on the podcast. In September, our amazing volunteer facilitators are leading us through conversations about This Lullaby and Jacob Have I Loved. Next month, the SSRBC will turn its attention to two more fantastic picks. Nevermore, and the first book in the Gallagher Girl series. I'd tell you I love you, but then I'd have to kill you. It's going to be fun. Learn more and join us for free at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub or at the link in SSR's Instagram bio. If you come to the end of this episode and you love what you heard, or if you're already having a good feeling about it now, it would mean so much to me if you would help spread the SSR love. Tell a friend about the podcast, post about it on social media, subscribe, leave a 5-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts, all of the things. You can take your support to the next level by becoming a Patreon sponsor. I'll just be honest, producing this podcast from start to finish as a one-woman show is time consuming and demanding, even if it is super rewarding, and the contributions I receive from SSR superfans thanks to Patreon really help keep me going and allow me to make continual improvements. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar per month, which equates to a quarter per episode. If you support the show with five or ten dollars per month, there are tons of exclusive rewards up for grabs, including newsletters, bonus episodes, reading recap videos, SSR merch, Patreon parties, admission to the shit we read book club, and more. I appreciate the existing Patreon community so much and I would love to see it continue to grow so the podcast can grow with it. Learn more at www.patreon.com ssrpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. I waited all summer for construction on a brand new independent bookstore on my literal block to finish up and it finally has. The store opened last week, and I basically told them to take all my money. I know I am so lucky to have this kind of easy access to an indie bookseller so I can support what they're doing. If you don't happen to live near an indie and still want to move some of your book purchases away from giant corporations, you can do that with your audiobooks, thanks to Libro.fm the audiobooks you get from Libro.fm are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, then use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Thanks so much to Libro.fm for continuing to partner with SSR. Now let's go to the show. freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR podcast.
1: Hi, Sarah. Welcome to SSR. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled that
0: you're here. We were kind of joking about this before I started recording, but like it is so fun to have another podcaster on the show. I've mentioned this before, let alone another book podcaster on the show and a book podcaster who's a writer. Like this is my dream. I'm so excited. I think we're going to have a lot to say.
1: Yes, I agree. This is like the ideal pairing right now. It's so fun to meet someone else who is in this very particular space. <laughs> very
0: particular. Also, like, let's take a moment to talk about how much fun it is to be a guest on a podcast and not be driving the bus on your own show.
1: I am really looking forward to this conversation because I was like, oh my God, I was doing all of this um, prep beforehand. And then I was like, oh yeah, also you're not hosting this one. So you you don't have to be so like on top of it. Yeah, I'm excited. It's hard to turn that off. I get it. Yeah, I
0: understand. Well, I will, (laughs) I will be your leader on this one. Although I cannot wait to hear your many thoughts about this book, which is Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim is I guess how we're going to say it. Yes. It's written by Robert C. O'Brien, published in 1971, won the Newbery Medal, which is a very big deal in 1972, read by me, I believe sometime in the mid 90s. How about you? What is your history with this book? And why did you want to read it for this episode?
1: Yeah, I remember this book really vividly. But as we'll get into more, I'm sure as this conversation goes on, I really vividly remember the cartoon, Mm. uh, which is called The Secrets of Nim" and came out in 82. And I know I read this book, but the cartoon is just so vivid in my memory. So it was actually really fun to revisit it and be like, oh, this is what and to compare the two because they're really different, um, which I really want to talk about. So I'm sure I read this in grade school. And when when you asked me about being on the show, I was actually really like excited to go back. I've been thinking a lot recently about Newbery medalists and Caldecott medalists. So anyway, it was just fun to go back in the archives and see what has won the Newbery Medal in like the last 50 years and what I what stood out to me and I remember really vividly. And this was one that I was like, yeah, I do want to go back and just like delve into that and see like what's up with that. Because I'm not, I don't know about you, I'm interested in this. I wasn't ever the biggest reader of books where animals are the main characters. This is one of the mm. rare ones that got me, like this and Redwall, I, I think.
0: Interesting. So I am an animal lover. I think I I was drawn to animal books, like big Charlotte's Web fan as a kid. Mm. Um, I'm sure there's many others that I'm forgetting. Of course, my mind is coming up entirely blank in this <laughs> moment, as I think of other animal-centric books that I loved when I was growing up. I actually remember reading this book sort of like under protest a little bit like i'm pretty sure i only read it because i needed it for like whatever accelerated reader milestone i was Mm -hmm. trying to hit at the time Mm -hmm. or something because i have a very clear memory of just being very put off by the the like the book in theory as a concept and look i know there's there are people out there who have rats as pets i have heard that rats make excellent pets I am not here to take a stand against rats, domestic or otherwise. I lived in New York City for many years and became very acquainted with them on the subway, for example. Love Pizza Rat. That video is really (laughs) weird and funny and quirky. But as like a seven, eight, nine-year-old kid, not really excited about a book about rats. And also, and I, I sort of maybe gave it away a little bit when I was introducing the book at the top of the episode. But even the title itself, like I didn't know how to say it when I was little. And I as a little girl did not do well, like feeling silly, or like I didn't know something, just something that I worked on. And so I think that there was just something like that I was not drawn to in this book. Yeah, a lot of barriers to entry there. Yeah, I don't think that it is a natural fit for like every kid reader, which doesn't mean that it's a bad book. I mean, it won the Newbery medal and it's an amazing book, but I do think that it, I think maybe the marketing might've been a challenge for it at certain periods of history. Do you think that's fair to say?
1: I think so. I mean, I, as part, as I mentioned, like went a little deep in researching right before we started talking. So I have up on my other screen over here, Robert C. O'Brien's Newbery acceptance speech, Oh, interesting. Yeah, which is really interesting. It's also on some website called thornvalley.com. I'm just like, where on the internet am I? This, like, this I'm going to travel that? there after <laughs> we're done talking. And listeners,
0: I'll make sure to link to this in the show notes for those yeah. who want to check it out. Because I did not – in my deep dive, I did not find my way to thornvalley.org. Is, that what, is it a .org or a .net? It's
1: a .com, which oh, is a dot com. I guess wow. it wasn't very sought after. This is a community presumably <laughs> for people who are really obsessed with this book and the yeah. life of the rat civilization. Thorn Valley is the name of the place where the rats are going to live and create their own world. But in his acceptance speech, he dedicates a not insubstantial amount of it to defending why he wrote a book about rats which is so funny like it's, it seems like that was a really big piece of feedback that people gave him like he says one people ask him why he writes books for children and two why given every possible thing you could write about did you choose rats and his reasoning for it and I'm so interested actually to get into this like is that the inspiration it sounds like the thing that was really inspiring to him was thinking about in a post human world what creature could succeed hmm. humans what what creature would create like a new society right and in in some combination of personal experience and reading he came upon rats as opposed to say I think he says scorpions and cockroaches would would otherwise be really likely to like survive a human extinguishing event. So, so given the alternative, rats.
0: Given crazy. the choice, like <laughs> given the choice between rats and scorpions and cockroaches. I feel really good about rats. Yeah. Um, I think that this probably thrived much more than a scorpion or a cockroach yeah. book yeah. would have. But that's all really interesting because what I found when I was looking for info about his inspiration was that he was really taken with like a lot of reading he'd done about a series of experiments on rats, specifically in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s, which is like very broad. I mean, I I, w- I wonder why like the, those like 30 years of tests like were especially Especially fascinating to him because yeah. we know that like rats have been subject to scientific testing for many many years which is a big issue that I'm not prepared to get into today yeah and we're not here to argue for that certainly right. but I think it's really interesting that you found that speech that says that like it sounds like he took that information that he learned while reading about these tests and then sort of took it a step further and was like okay what would this mean for a post-human world yeah. So I also was really curious about the author and any sort of leanings he had, either politically or in terms of like advocacy for animals or the environment. And so I did a little bit of research about him and I didn't find as much as I would have imagined. He was a journalist for National Geographic, which I think is really cool. And maybe like speaks to some passion that he has for the natural world and animals. But I was like, I was prepared for pages and pages of search results about like how he'd been fighting for
1: animal rights in the seventies. And I came up short. Yeah. Okay. And this was so, because same, there's not a ton about him. And actually he passed away in 1973. Not So not long after this book was published. I think I have that date right, which is really wild. So potentially there were like years of advocacy that he could have been involved in that we will never Mm -hmm. know about. But yeah, what I found, okay. So when you just do a cursory Google, they tell you that a lot of this book was inspired by John Calhoun's experiments at actually the National Institute of Mental Health, which I don't recall in the book itself that they explain NIM or the, or he spells out what NIM stands for. No, he doesn't. And I had the same reaction because I
0: too stumbled on like the Calhoun name and the National Institute for Mental Health. And I was like, kind of just, paging through the book quickly just to make sure I hadn't missed it. But it's not in the book anywhere, which and I wonder if it's because he was trying like not to be too pointed. But yeah. it, it, I would think if you're a kid, read. I mean, maybe if you're a kid reading it, you care less than you are as an adult, like, because you're like, Oh, it's Nim. Like, that's what it says on the truck that picked these rats up who cares, like right. what it stands for. But I cared as an adult reader.
1: I cared too, and it was and in the animated movie they explain it right off the bat, which is interesting because the animated movie, instead of going this like rigorously scientific path, brings in all the supernatural element, which we can get into later. But this book, my feeling about Mrs. Frisbee, the book, is that it's it certainly is about these rats were the subject of an experiment and therefore became as intelligent as human beings, and then decide to embark on their own civilization. So. Interestingly, though, I think at first glance, you might think this was a book about whether or not we should be experimenting on animals. I actually don't think that that was his focus at all. I was actually trying to think like, what was he really trying to get across about this? And I think it was just like, by making rats intelligently equivalent to humans in this world, I think he taught, he's really getting at like the meaning of consciousness, what constitutes true intelligence, what is like, what does a society look like? I mean it's sort of like more thirty thousand foot um sociological rumination, or at least that's like what I was thinking, which is utterly undermined by the animated movie, LOL. But the other thing about the Calhoun experiment, just briefly the Calhoun experiment, which was so interesting, started in 1968 and basically he introduced four pairs of mice. I'm reading off my notes here he introduced four pairs of mice into a habitat where they had you know everything they needed as far as food and water and no predators and the population reached this sort of it never reached the max capacity that that environment could have sustained but it reached this point where then there was a total breakdown in social structure and the population just declined toward extinction and all of this weird social like the social behavior completely broke down with the rats and and like It just is, it's just fascinating. People should definitely Google it and look into it if they're interested in this. But the conclusion drawn from this experiment were that when all available space is taken and all social roles filled, competition and the stresses experienced by the individuals will result in a total breakdown in complex social behaviors, ultimately resulting in the demise of the population. That's like not really what he gets into in this book. I think he's a little bit more like thinking about what makes a civilization and what are the roles that we decide for
0: ourselves. Yeah, but I also think there's something interesting going on that he ne- he never like fully gets at, but he he's going there a little bit and there's a moment later in the book where the one of the like leaders of the rats, Nicodemus, talks about this experience he had finding a book about and and it mentioned something called the rat race. Yeah. And it was something that like really was inspirational to him and to the rest of this rat community in outsmarting the scientists escaping and then starting their own civilization. And he has this kind of epiphany about the fact that like this is a book that mentions a rat race. I don't know that the title was rat race, but it it was a book that mentioned something called a rat race. And Nicodemus talks about how all of the pictures were of humans and Mm -hmm. not of rats. Mm -hmm. And so that was confusing to him because he as a rat had been like, oh, this will be a book about me. But no, it was it was about the sort of, you know, metaphorical rat race that we all talk about as humans about the struggle to get ahead and what happens when people aren't caring for each other and are only out for themselves. I really remember like a very bad movie from the early to mid aughts, like an ensemble cast called rat race that I was like, really excited to see when I was 12. And then it was like, horrifying. <laughs> but I wonder if somewhere in that moment of the book, he's kind of pointing to the fact that like, you know, are humans bound for this sort of social breakdown where like nobody's taking on specific roles kind of mirroring what you're talking about with this Calhoun experiment and like could a rat population like potentially fill like the more structured system that humans are typically known for I don't know if that's making sense but I do feel like he he like dipped a toe in that pond mm-hmm. with that very small little moment
1: in the book yeah I completely agree that's one of the most overt um yeah. sort of like discussing. I mean, there's a lot of sort of discussion about the civilization the rats want to build and why they're doing it, not stealing from humans, which is really interesting and kind of a different thing. But yeah, so he was looking for books about rats and then found this and was like, no, this seems like a human problem, actually. Right. So I don't know why they're <laughs> blaming us for this, which was a, like a really funny moment. And I think that's as clear, that's as close to like a, a statement of purpose as this book gets to. Otherwise, it's sort of, yeah, about a community and caring for each other And, and, you know, notably, we're talking a lot about the rats, but the main character, Mrs. Frisbee is a mouse, which is, I have so many thoughts or mostly questions, honestly, about the structure of this book. It's totally bananas, bananas, but it's bananas that this book is from the viewpoint of not the subject of an experiment. Mrs. Frisbee, who is a normal rat except or a normal mouse, except that she can read and her particular bravery. I mean, but like her story, though it does have a lot like a a good amount of action, and she's a really interesting character in and of herself, is so predicated on Jonathan Frisbee, her husband, who we never meet, and mm-hmm. this entire experimentation and the Rats escaping, which is something told in several chapters of just flashback. And then all the rats escape, and she does not join them. It's just like really oddly phrased.
0: Yeah, I have, so, I have so much to say in response to what you just said. So, the first thing I'll say is that I want to echo the fact that this is a book about rats, but it's also a book about different species of animals in this sort of ecosystem supporting each other. So, you mentioned Mrs. Frisbee, who is a field mouse and her family. And then there's a crow that we meet named Jeremy. The names are amazing. I love <laughs> these like very human names as everybody listening probably knows. I have a golden retriever named Irving. So like I really dig a very human name for an animal. There's an owl whose name I don't think we ever get. There's a cat who like predictably causes a lot of problems. So there's there's this ecosystem of species and most of them are, are trying to be supportive of one another. And the humans are of course the ones fucking everything up. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I am just like so excited to talk about in response to what you just said, Sarah, is is, is with regard to Mrs. Frisbee. Like the fact that she is Mrs. Frisbee. And we have to have like a feminist moment here and we have mm-hmm. to talk about that. You know, we have Mr. Ages, who's one of the other mice in the book. And he goes by Mr., which I think is more um, sort of in deference to his age. He seems like an older mouse. Mm-hmm. But Mrs. Frisbee is the only character in the book who does not have a name. Yeah. And we only know her as Mrs. Frisbee, wife of Jonathan Frisbee, who again, he has a name. He's mm-hmm. not just introduced to us as Mr. Frisbee. And there was a part of this that I liked because and I made a couple of notes about this in the margins of my book. Like I like the fact that, you know, Mrs. Especially in 1971, when this book was written, and in definitely like the decades that immediately followed its publication, Mrs. carries a certain level of respect. And I think that Well, I like to think that the author really wanted us to respect mrs frisbee mm-hmm. because maybe the point is that like mice often like don't get respect and right. this is an animal that's often like exterminated cast aside like mm-hmm. just generally hated on because it's small and people just like don't understand their purpose so uh, there was a part of me that really liked that she was mrs frisbee because it, it was sort of like a constant reminder that like this is a very small animal that still deserves our respect and deserves respect from the rats even though they don't know her mm-hmm. but i think to your point it's like annoying to me that as a character who's breaking down a lot of her own obstacles, she's navigating a big scary world basically independently. Mm -hmm. And yet we never even get clued in
1: on her first name. Right. Yeah. We never know her name, which is wild. And I think you're right that from an authorial standpoint, giving her a human honorific, like what we just said about the rats and the challenge of getting someone to read a book about rats or mice like i don't think he was unaware of that and i do think that like humanizing them to the extent that he did which is so the point of the book is to put human tendencies and traits onto another creature just as a way of mirroring what what we do and why so i do think giving this like really american understood honorific to the mouse was probably a, a decision to help like bring you in and give you some Understanding of the society. It just, it does a lot of work that misses. But then never introducing a first name ever is, feels like just one of these 1971 man author things mm-hmm. that it's like oh of course it makes me think of I don't know how you feel about this but I I'm on this one woman campaign uh against the New York Times for their continued the New York Times style guide continues to require that at the second dimension of someone's name you include Mr. or Ms. beforehand of course in an era where we are recognizing gender nonconforming people that just like doesn't make sense functionally and also all it does is remind you every time you're reading an article about the gender of someone when that has no bearing whatsoever on what they're being written about in the ways, anyway, So that just makes me think of that because it's this, this thing that we're still sort of fighting against. Like why is this necessary? For sure. And I will in this moment
0: recommend a podcast episode. I don't know if you ever listened to um, the, we can do hard things podcast, which is a Glenn and Doyle podcast. She recently did a whole episode about gender and they have a whole conversation about things like honorifics and mm-hmm. the tendency that we have not only to use phrases like mister and mrs but also like the awkwardness when in certain like areas of the country especially people kind of can't help but to be like hello ma'am or like you're uh-huh. welcome sir and like what how do we collectively shift what is sort of the agreed upon etiquette of of that so that everybody is respected not through an honorific but for their real identity yeah and so i think i will just I'll give a little plug for that episode because I think it's relevant to what we're talking about and I won't interrupt
1: you further. No, I love that. I can't wait to listen to that because that is definitely something I'm really interested in. And also we have the gift of, of speaking English as a primary language and English is so non-gendered in so many ways. So it's just funny, like these little messages that wrote, it's like, ah, can we just shake this? Because we actually are closer to a gender-free and lang- a, a more neutral language than lots of our other romantic language counterparts. But yeah, so, so that was annoying to me. Also, I mean, I'm going to keep bring up the animated movie because it was like such sort a of thing so I've never seen it okay so I feel
0: like I need to tell you that because so I, I did a little bit of research on it so I understand how it's different yeah and it seems weird and very 80s and i will also mention that they are actively doing a remake right now like i think the last announcement about it was in 2019 so like it's happening okay but i just i think it's important that you know that i have not seen it and i cannot wait for you to share more about it because i can tell you have a lot of thoughts
1: Uh, i do have a lot of thoughts on it it's mostly just that they made some really wacko choices in (laughs) <laughs> in interpreting it and also it's one of those if you're someone who grew up in the 80s or early 90s there is a certain kind of animation style that is just like so much weirder than it needed to be so much creepier like just re-watching it last night I was like I so many parts of my brain make so much more sense like rewatching these things so it's not like narratively interesting but something that that is interesting is they changed her name from frisbee to brisbee
0: because of trademark issues because they didn't want to have issues yeah that's what i read was that they were concerned about like and i don't i i don't know when like the frisbee toy maybe the frisbee toy became a thing sometime between 1971 and 1982 when the movie came out but they changed it to mrs brisbee because they were worried about trademark implications and then they took her name out of the title entirely because they were like, well, nobody's going to understand the connection anyway. So there's no real like capital or no like purpose in having her name in the title. So then they just
1: changed it to the secrets of Nim. See, I love this now. I, cause I was like, why on God's green earth, what a weird change to make. But yeah, that totally makes sense. And to your, to your point about the, the many hurdles you have to overcome to even like crack this book open, Mrs. Frisbee knowing as we do now that Frisbee, socially is means the toy it is another weird it's just a lot of weird stuff to this book that would possibly prevent you from wanting to get into it but I do actually think you know we're kind of in the weeds on it but I do think overall I really enjoyed reading this and I really thought it was like something that held up as would be of interest to to a younger reader and like introduces a lot of stuff that might make them curious about any number of of subjects and I think overall what I took away from it was like that it was very careful and studied about, I mean, all the descriptions of what happened with the rats was just fascinating and done sort of neutrally. I don't know that he really was actively coming down on how he felt about the experimentation. In the movie, they come down hard on not really. Yeah. They're like the animated scenes of animals in cages are really, were, were and are upsetting, but this book is pretty careful to walk around that and actually sort of is so scientific and how it's describing it. It's so scientific. And also the rats don't seem
0: especially bothered by the experience outside of the fact that it kind of took them out of their natural lives. Like mm-hmm. Nicodemus is very clear that it really wasn't that bad. Like mm-hmm. he talks about how really the only thing that was that sucked about it was that he was in a cage, but Mm -hmm. he's very explicit about the fact that like, he wasn't in a lot of pain. I think that if anything, we sort of get the sense that like the rat's, and this feels icky to say, and I certainly, this is like not my perspective on it or or what I believe about this kind of testing, but like, we almost get the sense that like they enjoyed it because it was challenging and fun and they learned a lot. Like we get a lot about what they gained from this experience. Like they learned to read, they are able to build machines. And so I think if anything, there's an argument to be made that the author is, I don't want to say like pro scientific testing on animals. But I would agree with you that at least what we're seeing on the page, it's not presenting that he's anti testing on animals or he's being very careful not to betray that he is.
1: I agree. And I mean, I think it's, it's notable to say that he was raised Irish Catholic. So, and I I was raised Catholic. So I'm familiar with like the Bible he was probably raised with. And there's some degree of like fall of man conversation happening here, which is like the rats, Nicodemus in like retelling his story to Mrs. Frisbee is really clear. Like I was taken away from my home. I, you know, I will now outlive everyone that I ever knew and many generations thereafter of my family, but they are, I mean, they spent eight months in this house reading every book in the library. I mean, like the rats are like actively engaged in building their society and their, so like, and they're perpetuating knowledge to the future generations. So like, there is a level to which I think they are like, excited to have the knowledge that the experiment gave them and to work with it but there is this loss that they will never like be able to get past and the you know jonathan frisbee to whatever degree he plays in the narrative their connection to him and their like deep deep loyalty to him and because of their loyalty to jonathan frisbee they help mrs frisbee in her (laughs) kind we need to get to that her like insane quest to move her entire house but they are clear in that they went through something together that is like a traumatic experience. So they have this shared loyalty, all the rats that went through that experiment and the mice as well.
0: Yeah, a brief moment on Jonathan Frisbee before we get into, I think we should go like the structure route, because there's a lot to get into with the structure. And I think talking about the structure will also give us a chance to talk about some of the other elements of the story that we haven't gotten to yet. Mm -hmm. But a, a brief moment on Jonathan Frisbee, something that I noticed reading this book as an adult that I think I probably wouldn't have picked up on as a kid or didn't pick up on as a kid and probably wouldn't have cared about. When I read this as a 30-year-old woman, I am struck by the fact that it would seem as though Jonathan Frisbee had like a secret life that he never told his wife about. And that's kind of scandalous. Like mm. if you if you were to recast these mice as humans, so that we can be maybe be a little bit more empathetic to like how Mrs. Frisbee might be processing the news that like her husband was in a lab along with all of these rats. He was part of a small group of mice that were also being the subjects of tests. Mm-hmm. He then escapes with these rats. There's only two mice that escape. It's, it's Jonathan Frisbee and then Mr. Ages, who we've talked about. And this whole time, he was kind of still in cahoots with the rats. Like he was still doing these kinds of missions with them. Mm-hmm. He was helping them drug the cat dragon when needed which is why he died. Like he was killed by dragon because he was helping the rats to get dragon to sleep so that they could like do their business without mm-hmm. having to worry about him attacking them. And Mrs. Frisbee is taking this all in stride. Like mm-hmm. she's like, Oh, okay. This it's all making sense. And again, this is a children's book. Like I don't expect Robert C. O'Brien to like get into the weeds of like their marriage, what does, <laughs> right? Like their marriage, especially because she's like still grieving. But I, I couldn't like every time we got another revelation about Mr. Frisbee, I was like, "What? Like yeah. this is all new information." In the words of Phoebe Buffet, "Like what are we supposed to do with this?" Like she, there's she's she's lost him.
1: She can't ask him any questions. Like it's a it's a lot of info. It's a lot of info, and like she, the fact that she didn't even know that that's how he died. Right. Like she, he had just not come home one day. She says, and then she like or I forget exactly how she, but like she did not know that he died drugging the cat. Right. She did not know about this former life. She did not know how he knew about electricity or how to read. Right. But she, but he taught her to read and taught his kids to read. There's just so much that it's like part of me wonders if it was back in 1971, a little bit more easy to swallow the fact that a wife would have no curiosity Mm. about a huge part of her husband's life or didn't feel that she could or or was curious to ask. I don't know. But then it brings in this whole element that the rats of Nim and Jonathan Frisbee as a mouse of Nim have this extended life. So Nicodemus is like, well, he couldn't, he was like really struggling with whether to tell you or not because he was going to outlive you. And it's like this whole, like what? Like existential, like this is a lot going on here. It's very Tuck Everlasting. It's very Tuck Everlasting. And then she has to go back to her kids and be like, you might be these
0: everlasting mice. We don't know. Yeah. I just, I mean, it really has the makings of a bit of a soap opera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If the perspective, you know, if it were, if it came from a different perspective, mm-hmm. I think there's the potential for like a very different tone and a lot of like personal torment and drama. Mm-hmm. So I just had to mention that, but let's talk about the structure of the book, because I agree yeah. with you that, that the author made some interesting choices mm-hmm. here. There's really two narratives going on. In some ways, it's almost like a book within a book mm-hmm. because when the novel opens, the primary problem is that Mrs. Frisbee knows that she needs to move her entire family from their like winter home, their winter spring home into their summer home. And this is all based on the farmer's like plowing seasons because they live on a farm and as soon as spring starts, he's going to start plowing the fields. And they live in a place where if he begins to plow the fields, they will be killed. Their house will be torn up, de- yeah. torn up, destroyed. So she is like, okay, it's time to go. At the same time, her son, Timothy, who has like some serious Tiny Tim energy. He's clearly the favorite. <laughs> um, he yep. has this like wisdom smartest. about him. He's yeah. the smartest. Like, In some, I would say like very, this is like a character we've seen before in Mm -hmm. other older literature, like Mm -hmm. the youngest member of the family who has a lot of health problems and yet is so wise and kind and perfect and untouchable.
1: Yeah. But
0: he has fallen ill with pneumonia. And so after seeking some help from Mr. Ages, he administers medicines and and that sort of thing. She is like, okay, well, I can't move him because Mm -hmm. Mr. Ages recommends that he stay in bed until he's well. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't really have that option because if she abides by that rule from Mr. Ages, her whole family is going to be killed and their home is going to be destroyed. So she's in a bit of a pickle. Mm -hmm. So we are led to believe throughout the first few chapters of the book that that's really what we're facing in this Mm -hmm. story. And that's really all that we're concerned about. Mm -hmm. But when she seeks help from the owl, who is like, you know, very much like the wise owl, um, he recommends
1: that she go speak to the rats because like they know everything. One of the first things that happened is Mrs. Frisbee meets the crow, helps a crow escape the crow, Jeremy, right. escape the cat. And that to me begins this parallel thing where I'm like, okay, yeah. There's a reason we're interested in this mouse. She is extraordinary on her own because she takes that yeah. step of saving. So there's one step where at the beginning you're like, okay, I care about this mouse who cares about all the creatures around her and puts sticks her neck out to save this crow. And the crow is the one that says, You have this problem, I'm going to take you to the owl. And so there's this cooperation and like engagement with her storyline from the beginning as a reader. I'm glad you said that because, and maybe this was just like the headspace that I was in when I was reading it, but
0: I was like, the first two chapters, I was like, okay, so we're going from the mouse to the other mouse to the crow to the owl to the rats. Like I was ready to get into the story. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you said that because I think that's an excellent point. And I probably should have appreciated that more about (laughs) Mrs. Frisbee from the beginning. I wish I had a first name to say I about know. her instead of Mrs. Frisbee, but that's a great point. But when she gets to the rats, we start hearing their story, which is like the story within the story that we we're talking about, which is the second narrative. What do you think sort of generally about books that are structured this way and also about this book
1: specifically and why this choice might've been made? Do you think it works? That's a great question. I mean, who am I to sit here and say that it won the Newbery and it doesn't work? So there's that element for sure that we're working with. But but it is befuddling. You sort of, and that's the reason I took pains to be like, okay, Mrs. Frisbee saves the crow. And that really, because at the end of the book, I sat there thinking, why did he do it this way? Why did he, because it seems more obvious to have written a book about the Nim time and then to have Mrs. Frisbee's story be like a sequel, or to create a longer book where I mean, it is really nuts to read a book where several chapters are just it goes from even narrative paragraph form to then there's a break. Yeah. And Nicodemus's retelling of his experience in Nim is this uninterrupted, like it, it it goes out of dialogue entirely to being like Okay, we're just gonna let him speak for several chapters. Right. And the margins are different. Like it's it's it really
0: looks like a story within a story, the way that it's actually formatted on the page.
1: Yeah, which is so interesting to us as writers, right? It's like, what is he doing here to like sort of um, show us that we're in this in this flashback? I think, having finished the book and thought about it, that it does work because Mrs. Frisbee does have a story unto herself that Interestingly, in the animated movie, the thing that I think they did do right, they did most wrong, but the thing they did do right was even bulk up her heroism and her moments of individuation. But in the book itself, which is has a limited scope, I think Mrs. Frisbee does do a good job of distinguishing herself as a uniquely caring, interesting character. And I get that what Robert C. O'Brien is interested in talking about is like after. He doesn't want to be in the lab. He wants to talk about we have smart rats, now what do they do? So I, I do think that he really wanted to avoid just spending a book in a lab, which I don't blame him for, but it creates, I mean, it's it's a challenging structure and it's a little disjointed. It, it It's not the smoothest read. Yeah, and it creates
0: sort of weird pacing yeah. for me and yeah. I'm and I have a lot of thoughts about pacing like I'm I'm the one in all of my MFA classes in workshop where I'm like a question about the pacing and
1: everybody's <laughs> like oh my god please well she spends like I mean a good chunk of that like maybe the if this I see it in my head is functionally four acts and like the third act is entirely in the library <laughs> Yeah. And the first act, like I said,
0: she's just going from animal to animal to animal to animal. animal, And I'm like, okay, are we going to save Timothy? Because I want to save Timothy. Like to the author's credit, his writing is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it really sort of points the reader's heart in the correct direction Mm -hmm. as he sees it. Like I was fully rooting for Mm -hmm. Timothy, even though we don't really spend that much time with him on the page. Yeah. I was in, I was like, let's solve this problem. I want to be along for this ride Mm -hmm. while Mrs. Frisbee is the hero of her own story. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to make this right. And the first act, I think that's fair, like four acts, the first act dragged on a bit because I was like, okay, like, when are we going to get to the part where we're actually going to heal Timothy? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then it's like pages and pages of Nicodemus telling his story, which actually was really interesting. And again, like, I wonder how much of Robert C. O'Brien's decisions were made sort of with a kid reader in mind, it's hard for me to think about, I, I guess there's an argument to be made that young readers might find like the lab content boring. But Mm -hmm. I also would argue that young readers might find a lot of this exposition kind of difficult to get through. So I kind of wanted to be like more in scene, like in the lab, seeing what was happening. And then I wanted to be like, actually with them in real time while they were escaping, like that seemed really exciting. And actually setting up this civilization, like there was so much there. And I wonder if the author just like didn't want to get into it and I get that like sometimes we all as writers make choices where we're like I don't want to talk about this anymore so like let's just say there was a giant thunderstorm and the night ended you know like I just don't
1: want to do this yeah it's that's that's such a good point that like when the rats like we are with Mrs. Frisbee in the moving if I do I remember this right we're with her in the moving of the house now I'm now I'm Mixing I up. think we are. Yeah, I think we do see that from her perspective. But then the escape is she's like, I found a tall branch and I sat there and watched it happen, and it's like, yeah. And she describes it like somebody went back. I mean, it was like this huge action thing, but we just are so limited because we're only in her perspective that we don't see it. But, but there's, I'm like trying to think of of reasons why you would do this, and and having the point of view of one of the rats, you then wouldn't get the background that you need to understand the stakes of what they're doing like having the outsider perspective does allow you to like explain what's going on but it does mean that like in one of the most climactic scenes when the rats home base of this rose bush is being destroyed and they are doing this mission to trick the scientists into not you know they're they're trying to save everybody else by 12 of them doing this great dramatic escape and two of them die and one goes back to save them. And there's just like this really like emotional thing. Not only do we not see that, we don't know who died. right? And like, I mean, there's just a lot that's left and we don't know what happened. We don't, we assume they all escape and started their new life, but we don't see it. It's, we're sort of left wondering.
0: Yeah. I think, I mean, there are two escape scenes in this book. I think they both are a little bit unsatisfying for different reasons. And again, this book won a Newbery Medal and clearly deserves it. And the writing is spectacular. And there's so much to dig into in this book. And I'm fascinated by this author. And clearly, like I think we both are taken with this whole mm-hmm. idea and we'll probably both keep looking into this. So I want to preface what I'm about to say with that. But <laughs> um, I think that both of the escape scenes like fell flat or fell short in different ways because the first escape scene is, coming from Nicodemus' retelling of the rats and the mice escaping from the lab. Right. And that I really wanted to see like live and in person. Mm -hmm. But that I felt like was written in a really clear way. Like I understood the narrative. I knew exactly what was happening. The second escape scene, which is the one that I think you're talking about, comes at the end Mm -hmm. when Mrs. Frisbee is trying to help the rats escape because – it's a little confusing at the end in general. It's a little chaotic, but to sum it up, like they're concerned that the scientists from Nim are coming back to get them, like to see what happened. And so they, they want out, they don't want the scientists to know where they are. And so they developed this whole plan, which I, even as an adult reader found like a little confusing, even the plan itself, like, Mm -hmm. I didn't really understand what was happening with the scientists. I didn't understand like why they were so quick to draw that conclusion that it was the same scientists. I I understood it like broadly that they were basically like building a cover so that the scientists would come and like think that they had exterminated the whole civilization when in fact they would hopefully not have exterminated any of them. But as you mentioned, Sarah two rats don't make it through the plan. Mm-hmm. We don't know who those two rats are. I would imagine that kid readers would find that very unsatisfying. Mm-hmm. There's some implication that it's like probably Nicodemus and Justin because they're like the heroes but we don't know for sure and that is frustrating but I thought just in general like that whole escape scene it felt and I'm I'm very in touch with this feeling as a writer myself so this is certainly like not critical because I get this but it almost felt to me and I'm curious what you think. It felt to me like Robert's O'Brien got to this part and was like the only way that I can explain this is through a sound effect and it's this like on the keyboard not the keyboard because it's 1971 maybe on like a typewriter was like this is done we're gonna get this like like let's just get this out of our system let's get it on the page and be done and I I don't like when endings are like that I do think a lot of authors do this with endings I don't like a chaotic ending and this felt chaotic to me it did
1: feel chaotic and I I my version of what, of what you're describing, which I love that sound effect. That is definitely, I think we all as readers are like, yep, I've read that book. Um, yeah, this to me felt like, and this is a a weakness in my own writing that I've identified. So maybe this is me projecting, but it felt like we really like, so we solve the problem of Mrs. Nim's house. Her house is successfully moved to the Lee of the stone. But while I believe this is true. While her house is moved, she was in the bird cage. Yes. So I, I mean, just in case someone hasn't read and is following along, she, vol- Mrs. Frisbee volunteers to drug the cat, to take the dangerous mission to drug the cat so that the rats can work overnight and move her house. She gets captured while she's drugging the cat and then escapes later on in the night. While she's been captured, her house has been moved. And the and the functional big climactic thing of the book to me safety has been secured it's like done right basically but while she is in the cage she overhears the humans having a conversation about these scientists who are going to come back and i mean it's this whole thing like then there's jenner and these other rats there's so much like once you get into you're like yeah there's a lot going on there there's rats in a hardware store (laughs) that like got
0: electrocuted trying to steal a motor and i think that's what was missing for me that i was like why are we the headline about the rats in the hardware store, like, yeah. how does A lead to B, which is that the scientists are coming back? Like, it yeah. was just a big leap for me.
1: And 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 this is, this is my point is when it got to this final thing of like, then the rats are like, we're going to build a false escape and there's going to be two rat holes. And it's, I was just like, this is when I read stuff like that, I think this author is answering questions I didn't have. Mm -hmm. it seems like Robert C. O'Brien was like red tape with index card, you know, like was like, okay, they escape. And then there's this, I think in his mind, it was so intricately plotted out. And and he did all of the work of like, this is how they would do it. And me as the reader, just me personally, as a reader, I'm not as plot focused as I am character focused and emotion focused. So at the end, I cared about that the rats were escaping. I cared that Mrs. Frisbee had or didn't have some cathartic final moment with them. I cared that Timmy was fine, you know, like all that stuff. Yeah. But I didn't care about the logistics of this rat escape. Right. And that's what a lot of the final act hinges on. And it's not that interesting and a little confusing and, and interesting because to that point, I think of a hallmark of his writing and a lot of writing of really excellent middle grade is his clarity Yes. Throughout this book, Robert C. O'Brien is so clear and his sentences are really crisp and you are just with it almost the entire time. And then at the end, it was like, I'm actually not really with it as much right now. I don't know what I'm seeing. It was a little disappointing and a little kind of like, well, I don't know. And I do like that the final scene is Mrs. Frisbee and her children because that was the emotional arc that was the most like um, really got me. But Yeah. I don't know that it was truly successful. And I do think that he was answering a lot of questions I didn't have.
0: Yes. Well, and it sounds like we're similar readers in that like, once we get too into the, like the logistics of a plot, I'm done. Like, this is why I don't watch action movies. Like I fall asleep during a chase scene. (laughs) It's boring to me. I, and maybe it's, some failing on my part that I just like can't follow along, but it's not interesting to me. We were definitely in the same boat there.
1: Yeah, I just, this is so interesting. I've been talking to friends about this recently. So I just want to throw this out there, not in particular in relation to this book, but something I've identified about myself as a reader recently and therefore as a writer. And what I want to prioritize in my writing is I am not solving a mystery when I'm reading. I really sort of turn on, I don't like reading thrillers and I don't like reading mysteries because I'm actually, I don't want to be ahead of the book. I'm mm-hmm. actually happy with just like processing it in real time because I'm there for setting, vibe, emotion, character. So I like heist stories and not uh, mystery stories because I want to be there with people planning something. And I'm like, okay. And then there's a twist and I'll be like, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. As opposed to like forensically, oh who, yeah. did, who did it? I'm like, I don't really care about that. So I do love action movies, but I don't fall asleep. I just turn off and I'm like, wow, that was so pretty yeah we i think we are a similar similar story yeah. creatures and that yeah is where in for me in this book i was like glaze i don't know who survived i don't know what happened it's 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 a little sad and and we should note that there are two sequels to this book
0: written yes. by robert
1: c o'brien's daughter which i think is fascinating because at the end you have a lot of questions I have a lot of
0: questions and I, there's one other sort of specific thing that I wanted to ask you about before we start to wrap up. Although I think we probably could talk about this book for another two, three, four hours. Definitely. And, and I think you mentioned early on earlier on, but there's this one theme that runs throughout the book. Well, there's, there's two big ones. One is sort of like the love and power of reading, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. But another is this idea of like the, I would say like the moral righteousness of like, Doing things independently mm. and not relying on others mm-hmm. because the rat's big plan is to basically like store away enough food, build their own plow, move to Thorn Valley because Nicodemus in particular is really ashamed about the fact that like everything they get, they get because they're taking it from the humans. Mm-hmm. that farm the land that they live on. Incidentally, Robert C. O'Brien did own a farm. So I, I would imagine that he got a lot of inspiration from that experience. So I I wonder what you think about that through line, especially because we are talking about a book for kids here. And as much as I'm always careful not to like pigeonhole books into these boxes of morals, like especially older middle grade books, I think were often written with like a moral in mind. Mm hmm. I think it's also worth noting that we are talking about rats here who I think in large part get their bad rat because they are known scavengers who Mm -hmm. like take food from humans. So I just threw a lot at you about
1: this idea, but I am just curious about your take. That's so interesting. And I could talk about this for a million years because it really does. I mean, to me, there's a lot of ways that this book poses more questions than it than it answers, And sometimes that's frustrating and sometimes it's just the mark of really wonderful children's literature right so i agree with your premise that so much of the rats journey is about independence and creating a society on their own and that is explored in a positive and put in a positive light however mrs frisbee our protagonist her entire storyline is about cooperation and collaboration she ends up still living with her family. And like the success of it is that she's in her summer home where she's with other mouse families. The, the ideal happy ending for her is she's still friends with the crow. She got to see the owl. She's independent and fought for those things herself, but maintaining a life within an ecosystem of the farm is the happy ending for our main character. However, we are also cheering for these other sort of main characters who are like we want to light off away from all men. I mean, it's, I think, I don't know that Robert C. O'Brien had an answer. And I think that that's what, that's the heart of what we're talking about with the confusing structure, not confusing structure, but the unusual structure and all that stuff is I think that he's really grappling with this. What does it mean to be part of a collaborative society where we have interdependence? And what does it mean to, Almost like scientific advancement and personal self actualization, like self self optimization, right? That's kind of what the rats are like are in it for. I don't know, but then even the rats are are just really want to work with each other. I get the sense that that's what Robert C. O'Brien was really grappling with himself, and so we don't get clear answers on it. We get a lot of different viewpoints. I do think the one thing we can say is that humans are not great. <laughs> I think that's the one thing that he was like, we're not doing it right. Here are different ways of thinking about it. But yeah, that's that's my initial response to what you're saying. Because I think you're right that they, there's like one major through line is about consciousness and intelligence and what does that mean. And it's a gift, but also a curse. And the, the other one is this like, what does it mean to be in a society? What's the balance between individual needs and the needs of the group like that there's a lot of that in a lot of different ways in this book yeah I
0: think that those are excellent points and I will echo what I said which is that we could talk about this book for another two, three or four hours it's
1: so um, it's, I mean honest I think you and I just had a lot of critiques of it but it was really good
0: yeah I it's fantastic I really enjoyed reading it on the whole would you say that it held up to your
1: memories of it from when you read it as a kid I think definitely I mean I I just had, I don't know how you are with reading. You seem to have a better memory for this than me than I do. My, I have a couple of friends who remember books they read as a kid, like vividly, and they remember details from it. I actually am not, I don't have the best memory for books. I ha- I remember my feelings about them. And I mean, maybe this is related to like, I'm not solving mysteries. I'm just sort of like in the vibe of the book. So I just, I, I just had a vague feeling of really loving this book. So I was really glad to go back to it and get a lot more clarity on what it's actually about because I think it's. I certainly, as a young reader, wouldn't have been understanding all that he was throwing at the reader. It's, it's a book that, that you can read that certainly is appropriate for all ages because he's tackling a pretty adult set of questions as well. I agree. What
0: else have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners?
1: Oh my gosh. I have been reading, well, I'm reading Crying in H Mart right now, which is um, Michelle, gosh, what's her last name? Starts of the Z. Zahner. Zahner, um, who is a musician, otherwise known as Japanese Breakfast, and her memoir about the loss of her mom and her um, struggle with her half Korean identity. I'm reading that right now. It's fantastic. I'm a big memoir fan. I just bought this as well. The Love Songs of W.E.B. Dubois, which is a debut novel from a poet, Honore Fanon Jeffers. She's represented by my agent. So I had known about her, like I have known about her for a while. And then this book is blowing up and just got picked by Oprah for the book club. So I'm really excited for her. So I'm going to dive into that next. And I'm reading The Mists of Avalon. (laughs) All over the map. I'm all over the place. How about you? What are you reading right now? Uh,
0: I too am all over the map. So I'm like 30 pages from finishing Ducks Newburyport, which is the like thousand page book that has been around. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's, I started it in January and it's now (laughs) August 31st. So we're ready to be done. (laughs) Yeah. We're checking along. And then I just started The Plot by Jean Hanf Corlitz.
1: Oh yeah.
0: Which we're reading for the Patreon exclusive book club that we have for SSR. And that one was recommended to me by a few recent guests on the show. So I'm pretty excited about that. And it's really interesting be- just from the perspective of like just starting a new semester of my MFA, like it's set in a writing program and I'm only a few chapters
1: in. So I feel like I can't say much about it yet, but um, I like it so far. I'm excited. I will say that as far as Writers reading maybe craft books or books about writing. I was just really heartily recommended and just bought around the writer's block. But yeah, author's name is Bain, um, and it's across the room, so I, I'm, I forget. I forget the author's first name, but it's- I'll look it up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, uh, yeah. If you include it in the in the show notes, it's a book that applies neuroscience to writer's block and talks about the ways that writers can sort of basically trick your brain into not having writer's block. So I'm really excited to read that one. (laughs) It's sort of
0: like how, I wonder if they did that test on like the rats of Nim. like how do mean, it felt appropriate for this conversation. (laughs) 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 Well, I will include links to all of your recommendations in the show notes for this episode. We also have to take a minute to talk about your super cool work that you're Um, doing in the world. You have a podcast that I love speaking of craft and writers talking about writing, which is called first draft. You have a book called Tell Me Everything. Tell me everything about both your podcast and your book and anything else that you're working on that you want to share with our SSR community.
1: Awesome. Um, Thank you so much. So Tell Me Everything came out in 2019. It's a YA book. Um, The main character is 15 years old, which is actually kind of a rarity in YA right now. So if people are looking for books for um, young but not Elderly YA, I guess, in their life. It's a good one for that. It's really about it's a it's a book about art and social media and how young people are navigating those things. And it's also about kissing and stuff like that. Perfect. (laughs) Yes. So, um, and I just finished uh, a draft of a book that I'm hoping to sell in the next couple of months that will become the follow up. So everybody, cross your fingers for that. And as far as first draft. This episode will be coming out, I believe, right around the time that I am doing a big campaign to celebrate the fact that First Draft, uh, which has been around for eight years now or seven, is just surpassed a million downloads. And
0: I'm like, wait, let's take a moment. Like, let's can we take a moment? I know you're gonna like keep on going, but we need to take a moment. That's incredible. First of all, eight years. Like, yeah. I just hit year three, and I think I'm like, I'm like. I am haggard in this world. Eight <laughs> years is fantastic and such cause to celebrate, and a million downloads. Like, it's crazy. I'm so happy for you, and you deserve every single one of those oh, downloads and like the same thing tenfold.
1: Thank you. I so appreciate that. It's definitely like one of those moments, you know, in the writing life and in the podcast life, you don't have so many metrics of reasons yeah. to pause and celebrate. So I'm like, okay, a million's is a pretty big number. So to celebrate it, I'm doing this really big um, series of giveaways. Uh, you, if you go to first draft pod on Instagram, you'll be seeing a lot of giveaways and celebrating there about that. So everyone should go check that out. Yeah. First draft pod is basically a podcast for writers by writers. We talk to different people every week. You focus on books, which I think is such a fun an incredible way to learn about writing and structure and to get a better sense of what we are all doing when we get to the page. My podcast is a one-on-one interview with writers talking about their process and um, what has happened in their life that is reflected in their art and stuff like that. And there's a ton to learn about behind the scenes of publishing and all that stuff for my podcast too. So I think our podcast would be handy dovetailed for anyone who's um, an aspiring writer or getting into the business. So first draft pod, you can check it out on all everywhere that you're, you're listening to this podcast now. Um, And I'm on Twitter and Instagram and all that good stuff at Sarah any. So definitely check it out. If, If writing is your bag, this is probably the podcast for you.
0: Yeah. And even if you're not a writer yourself, I would say like dig into the first draft pod catalog, because I can tell you right now that there are at least a handful or a dozen or a few dozen interviews on there that are with authors that you love as a reader or talking about books that you love as a reader. Um, I'll call out to the episode you did recently with Casey McQuiston talking about One Last Stop. I know a lot of people in our community really love that book, love Casey McQuiston. Mm -hmm. So that's just one example. But your podcast is for writers, but also just for book lovers and readers. So um, I'm so grateful for what you're doing. And I'll make sure to link out to all of that good stuff in the show notes for this episode. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It was so fun. And I hope we get to stay in touch and hopefully
1: just continue book talking forever. Yes, I agree. Thank you so much. This was such a joy. I love your show too. So thank you for having me on. Bye. Bye.
0: SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.